From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. There are few industries that are more complex than the energy industry. The field intermingles government policy, free market principles, national security, climate change, and the desire for energy independence. When I was growing up, we didn't give it much thought until the energy crisis of the 1970s, which made you realize that there wasn't an unlimited supply of the fuel that powered everything from your car to your furnace. This put pressure on the US auto industry to offer more fuel-efficient cars and created the market opportunity for the Japanese car makers who've been making more efficient cars for many years. Over time, energy supplies increased, prices went down, and most people went back to their old habits. But then, in the early 2000s, economic growth around the world and the rapid rise of the Chinese economy forced the world to realize that energy mattered again. In fact, if something didn't change, energy supply would fundamentally limit global economic growth. So governments around the world responded with policies to promote new alternative energy sources, as well as a higher efficiency standard for everything from cars to lighting. If you look around your house or walk through your neighborhood, you can see the many changes that have occurred just over the past decade. LED lighting and smart thermostats are in your home, solar panels on people's roofs, and many more Teslas or other energy-efficient cars on the roads. So how did this all happen? Well, I recently sat down with Tom Warner, who is the CEO of SunPower, a solar energy company headquartered in Silicon Valley. Tom has seen an incredible transformation of the energy business over the last 15 years and helped take solar from an expensive niche technology to one of the cheapest sources of energy that is now being used to build entire power plants. Tom also dives deep into his own innovator's journey and shares lessons that any entrepreneur can benefit from, such as using the butterfly test to determine if the idea you're pursuing is big enough, leveraging the power of your cohort and recognize the value and motivation that comes from not being the smartest person in the room, the necessity of critical feedback. If you wanna get better, you need people to hold you accountable and tell you how you can improve and learning how to fly high and fly low. As a decision maker, you need to be able to see both the forest and the trees. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the Werner Sustainable Energy Lab on Marquette University's campus. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, Tom, thanks for being here today. Welcome to Innovators on Tap. It's awesome to be here, Chuck. So, Tom, you know, you have an interesting background. You have uh, two bachelor's degree in engineering. You have one from the University of Wisconsin at Madison and one here from Marquette. I'm curious why two. Was the first one didn't count or what's going on? <laughs> so I went to high school in New Berlin and my father filled out my application for where I'd go to my first degree. And uh, so I did what he filled out at Madison with an industrial engineering degree. And then I went to General Electric Company, 
and everyone else had electrical or mechanical or double E degrees and made light of uh, my imaginary engineering degree. So uh, GE at the time would fund your education. In fact, on the program, you were sort of encouraged, I'll say. So I said, well, you can't beat them, join them. I'll just get a double A degree. Where I blew it was I got an undergrad double A degree and not a master's. But uh, uh, that, and I got that at this great institution that we're sitting in now. You spent most of your career in Silicon Valley. And I'm curious, as you think about spending time there versus the other places you've traveled around the country, do you think it's easier to innovate in Silicon Valley, harder? Is there an advantage, disadvantage? What are your thoughts on that? My experience traveling the world, not just America, is there's no better place in the world to turn an idea into money. Now, that's capitalism, and that may not be what your goal is, but if that's your goal, no better place in the world to do that. And it's just built in to the way they think. So I spoke at uh, the University of Wisconsin, and I said, so uh, after I'm done talking, if you're interested in a job, line up over here. And uh, there was quite a line. I spoke at Stanford University, and I said the same thing, you know, quite a rambunctious group, and but a master's class. And I said, line up over here, and there was nobody in line over here. They were all in line over here on the left. I'm going, what are you guys doing, folks doing over there? And they said, well, we want to know if you want a job. (laughs) (laughs) And they're uh, pitching their business plan. So I think that there's a, I mean, when you go to Starbucks or the coffee shop, it's literally true. If you listen closely, you're going to hear a business plan being pitched. And then you have access to capital. uh, And it's just in the the, uh, uh, DNA of, of the area. So that is why we did the Silicon Valley experiences, because when I grew up in Wisconsin, I didn't even know what a startup was. It would never have occurred to me. I couldn't have defined it. Now, that times have changed, but uh, I think it's a little less true today. So you, you mentioned you worked at GE for a period of time, and I, I know I read something that says you were, uh, you've quoted that Jack Welsh was a leader that you really tried to emulate. What was it about what Jack Welsh did or how he did it that you thought was a quality from a leadership standpoint that was, you know, so valuable. So what was impressive about Jack Welsh was we were a huge company at the time. It's a much smaller company today. It's still quite large, but it's uh, it was much bigger. And he would say, we're going to de-layer. And it would happen. <laughs> you know, it, when I was there, they de-layered. It was a bad sign. People above me were now joining me. And I was going, huh, <laughs> that's not going to lead to success for me. That's when I left. He embarked on Six Sigma. He could have an outside in influence in a very large company. And I'm the big believer in some of what, uh, or a lot of what uh, he preached, like up or out in terms of talent. Either you're moving up or you're being trained to move up, or maybe you should leave. Uh, having differentiation in talent, I think, is very important. Uh, I think he was an innovator. You know, the idea of uh, winning. That was a man who wanted to win, you know, and that pervaded the, you know, that really made a big difference in a huge company. So when it comes to innovation, you know, when Cree was starting out, right, we had this white LED and GE was this customer, maybe partner. We tried to work with them many times. And what we figured out is that we started to have success that uh, at one time we worried that GE was going to just come in and squish us someday. And, and as we started to build on that momentum, we realized we actually wanted to compete with GE because all the things that made them really good at running that complex, large company and honestly 
applying Six Sigma everywhere, from our perspective, actually made them pretty bad at innovation and really testing new ideas quickly. Do you, do you think that some of the GE things that worked for Jack Walsh also potentially got in the way of, of them trying to push new ideas into the marketplace? Or do you think that's uh, some other artifact? I think there's no question. I think for the last 20 or 30 years, maybe longer, GE was the place where you trained to be a CEO elsewhere, became a great manager. <clears throat> I the benefit of read half of Chuck's book, by the way, <laughs> uh, which is quite good. Uh, the new incubator for CEOs, by the way, is Amazon. So it's no longer GE. But what makes you great at a big company is uh, counterintuitive and is actually, I think, slows innovation how you sift through ideas, how you uh, budget allocate. So it's super hard for a big company to be innovative. And there's been all kinds of creative stuff to change that. I've actually worked in some cool places where they had incubators and you could have your internal startup, you spin in, spin out. But it's super hard in a big company because the, the big machine crushes you down and ideas get uh, rejected about six layers before they get to the top and how do you filter them and all that. So, you know, Tom, you're, you obviously have been a, a successful public company CEO for a long time now, but you know, after GE, it was 3Com. I think you worked at Oak Industries. Is that right? And then you end up at Cypress, which turns into SunPower. As on your way to becoming a CEO, can you give us a couple of examples of things that you learned in that journey that helped define you as a leader and kind of prepared you for eventually running a company? I got out of uh, Madison, went to G in their training program, and uh, I'm with, I went to Aircraft Engine in Cincinnati, Ohio. And first of all, scared out of my mind. I had a, uh, a Camaro without air conditioning and no furniture. Uh, I had actually a telephone spool that uh, as a table and maybe one chair and G sent a moving van to Madison. And the guy was so upset because it filled up like 5% of the backers. Anyway, I moved to uh, Cincinnati and I go to the facility and it's like a mile long. And I'm like, how do you figure out what door to go in? Or first of all, what building and then what door? Anyway, I make it, I figure out the door and there's 40-ish uh, other MMP, manufacturing management program trainees. And not long into it, they're sort of going, I want to be in Jack's job. I'm like, Jack who? <laughs> you know? And they're like, Jack Welsh. And so six months in, I'm going, well, why not me? So that was one pivotal moment, and I think your cohort, you can make a huge difference, right? Uh, then I was at GE Medical here, and I actually worked at GE Medical uh, the three years I went to school at Marquette. Uh, I ran their second shift, shipped their first MRI, and came here during the day. And while I was at GE Medical, there was an all-hands meeting, and I'd be in somewhere in the audience. And the person up front's presenting, and I'm thinking, they don't have a clue what we're thinking. You know, they don't really connect. And I think I can do that. I think I can be high-low. Uh, I'll get the big picture, but I'll be in the details too. And so that was going to be my uh, unique approach to becoming a CEO. And I was really focused on wanting to be a public company CEO. And uh, uh, from then on, it was sort of, how do I take jobs that are beyond my capability? Call it the butterfly test. If you have huge butterflies, go for it. And uh, 
So there was the peer group, then there was the seeing the speaker in the front of the room. Then it was kind of, frankly, go for it. Uh, and what actually happened is I left 3Com to do a startup called Silicon Light Machines, funded by Cypress. Okay. And uh, the startup had great talent, but nobody was buying what we were making. <laughs> so, like, that's a problem. <laughs> you need customers. So, I actually, my first CEO job uh, was for a startup. I did it for two years and went to SunPower because they had customers. And they had a good team. They had good funding. It was a very rational decision. So, you know, you said something that's really interesting, which is the group you started out with, that cohort, helped change your expectations. And uh, I actually hadn't thought of that before, but I, if I look at the group I started with at HP, I think four or five of us ended up as CEOs of the 15 of us. And so there is something to who you surround yourself with and setting those expectations. That's a, it's just an incredible observation that I've never, uh, never thought about before. I think it's probably great advice for people to realize you probably want to put yourself in the toughest situation, not the easiest one. So you've been a CEO for a long time and you got to be that public CEO you were looking to be. Favorite part of being a public CEO and least favorite part? So I've been a uh, public company CEO since uh, uh, November 17th, 2005. So just crossed uh, 16 years. And uh, <clears throat> just to calibrate the Welcome average. Welcome to the club, by the way. Yeah, 16-year club. You were, right. you were 16 right. years and a quarter. 16 and a quarter. <laughs> so anyway, I have a big sample. The average uh, public company CEO, I think, is four or five years, something like that. Uh, so 16, what Chuck did is, uh, and I'm doing is uh, unusual. Uh, what I like most is, of, of course, the people. And I think the, uh, I do, I'll, be uh, I've known Chuck for quite a while. I'm completely transparent on this podcast. I like being the last decision maker. I like taking that risk. You know, somebody has to make a decision. The worst thing you can do is be indecisive. That's one of the things I learned at GE, by the way. There were professionals at slow rolling a decision until there was only one option. And then they go, that's what we're going to do. And I said, that is exactly what I'm not going to do. <laughs> you know, uh, so that's what I like. When I interview people to come to the company and I say, what would you, the ideal next job? And I'd say 99% of the time, the candidate says, I'd like a growth environment. So that creates what I don't like is when you don't have growth, you usually have to cut cost. And when you have to cut cost, you're sort of, which we just did, uh, you're sort of admitting, I've done a poor job leading now. It's never up and to the right perfectly. It, even Google and Yahoo or uh, uh, Facebook and Apple have, the, you know, Apple certainly had their day um, and they will again. Uh, but it's it's when you have to reduce people. And in the last reduction, we let seven people go who had been with the company more than 10 years. So people have said in Silicon Valley, that's an eternity, right? Who have committed to you and you said, thanks for committing to me. You don't have a job tomorrow. That's no good. You mentioned there was something at GE that um, you saw things in your career and some of them you didn't like. You said, that's not the way I'm going to do it. Are there any other examples of things that you learned on that journey and said, you know, that might be a good example of leadership, but that's something I'm not going to replicate again. I, these are things I'm going to purposely avoid when I get my chance to lead a company. 
Well, the, I cited the one, which was uh, slow rolling decisions. I need more data. Let's have another meeting. Uh, let's try to reach consensus. And you're sitting there going, okay, you know, you're frittering away the opportunity because one of the things I learned in Silicon Valley is the uh, early life cycle margins are the highest. So if you look at the area under the curve, the biggest area under the curve is during when you win and get out early. Uh, and so it requires, uh, 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 I think, being decisive. Uh, the other thing was that uh, reviews that are nothing but positive are close to worthless. Because if you sort of go six hours later, if you said, what did they just tell you? It's super hard to remember. And it's not very valuable, right? I want to know how I can be Jack Welsh, <laughs> not how great I am, because I know I'm not great. You know, that uh, sort of how do you and then how do you do give feedback effectively? How do you share with somebody? Here's what would help you be great. And they go, uh, they take it as uh, a good idea versus why are you attacking me? You know, I, I'm not that bad. And, and you devolve into give me three examples. Like, really? <laughs> you know. I, I think the ability to fly high and fly low, understand the details, but not get lost in the trees. Uh, is something you never perfect, uh, but it's a super important part of the job. So you had a chance to be at some amazing companies, some more innovative than others. Is there a, an example of an innovative person during that career that you say, look, if, if the one person I'd say was the best innovator I worked with along the way, who would it be? I have two examples, one that I worked with and one that I love to use at SunPower. So I interviewed at a place called US Robotics. They basically were the world leader in data modems back when you, uh, some of the people in the audience were a twinkle in your parents' eyes. <laughs> uh, maybe not that long. Um, but in uh, the CEO of that company in Chicago, Skokie, uh, again named Casey Cowell, I interviewed with him and I felt like I left the stage of 60 minutes when I got done with the interview. The guy was just incredibly uh, uh, inspiring and uh, uh, just a, a torrent of ideas and thoughts and concepts um, that was super impressive. And interestingly, they sold to a company in Silicon Valley and on the merger, it was the cultural opposite of what you'd expect. The Chicago company was the entrepreneurial company. And the stodgy, process-driven, HP-like company was 3Com. Uh, and the, the cultures absolutely uh, clashed and came apart at the seams. And Casey's cowboy, you know, go for it, uh, unstructured, uh, was super interesting in how much two really pretty big companies could have the culture of the CEO. That was another thing I learned is uh, the impact of the CEO uh, is incredible, is mind-boggling how much difference you can make. The the innovative leader, because I thought you might ask me this, so I thought about who do I, who would I aspire to? I thought the example I use is Netflix. Reed Hastings. I mean, it's it's SunPower. Uh, I have a bunch of uh, pet phrases I like to use. One is capitalism works. So if you've uh, if you're growing and very profitable, you're going to attract a lot of competition, and then you're not going to be growing and profitable much longer. So you have to <clears throat> anticipate and move to that next uh, competitive plane. 
so my corollary is I, I preach to Sun Power people is change is your friend. Because if you don't have change, you're a commodity. And commodities, that's, that's very low OPEX, which means there aren't many of you people working here. So either you innovate or you're a commodity, in my view. Uh, and Netflix, think about that. They, you maybe don't remember, but they, their business plan was to mail DVDs to you. And then you could, uh, and they had special return rights and that sort of thing. That, and it, they killed it with that business plan. I remember reading in some, maybe the local uh, newspaper at the time about how they were pivoting to streaming. Uh, oh, they're dead. Yeah. Right. What skills do they bring from, shipping dvds to streaming and then they win streaming then they pivot again to creating content so get, get a load of it can you imagine the the staff meeting where they said okay now we're going to take on hollywood <laughs> well what I, I think it also plays to the idea then that it's probably less about expertise and more about mindset and how you think. I mean, I think what they showed is they had this way of thinking that made it work, not necessarily what they knew. And I think the way they thought starts with their CEO and it pervades through the organization. So um, I read where you said that if you want to change the world, you build a great company. And I'm curious, is that something that that mindset, that approach – is that something that's always been part of who you are? Or is that something you learned? In other words, is are, are people that think that way born that way or do they learn to become that way? So I like to talk about the CEO moment, it, the way it happened with me, which is you realize that, uh, you know how you say, oh, they, how could they uh, work on the street in the middle of the day? Oh, how could they, you know, whatever, uh, build a building there or how could they and then you realize wait a second i could be they <laughs> you know that uh, oh that's one of my uh, favorite phrases which is uh, responsibilities 80 percent taken and 20 percent given and so you you switch from i could be they then you think what can i change i think there's a higher uh, there's just a different thinking of it's not happening to me. I'm happening to it. And you can see that day to day. So are you born with that or is it innate? Well, we'll find out people listening to the podcast. <laughs> Hopefully we spawn some great leaders, uh, which I'm sure you will, Chuck. It's, uh, I, I, you know, the cohort of GE greatly influenced me. So I think there's certainly an element of learning, but there's that insatiable desire to win and almost no fear. Almost, almost you enjoy fear. Fear is, you know, or, or like I said, change is good. But when you're the butterfly test, when you have fear, you're going, okay, I'm in the right spot, you know. Because the harder it is to do, the harder it is to replicate. The higher sustainable advantage you have. So I'm going to switch a little bit to uh, just more specifically what you've been working on. So you've been in solar 20 years now, close to it? 2003, so working on year 17. And, you know, solar in the beginning, it was really a question of does it work or not? And there was a lot of government incentives that were involved in helping kind of get the, the issue and the momentum building. And I know that I still find it interesting when people question whether or not do incentives belong as part of driving a market. And I guess, what do you think? I mean, is it, I know you benefited from them, but now with the benefit of hindsight, do you think incentives are the right way to create an industry or should you just leave this up to kind of some of the people that believe it should be purely a market-driven phenomenon? Mm -hmm. 
So when I came to SunPower, I came from tech, pure tech, data communications. And the idea of government policy was basically leave me alone. And, you know, at 3Com, we had maybe 6,000 people and there maybe was two people in government policy. Uh, then I joined, uh, after the startup, I joined SunPower and we were hiring like the fifth person on my staff was the head of policy. <laughs> I asked the person, I remember this saying, so what exactly do you do? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't get it at all. And what you understand is, is energy is po a policy driven industry and policy is regulations and it's incentives. So whether you like policy or not in energy, you need to be good at policy. You have no choice. Now, can you pick winners and losers? So the Republicans love to say, oh, B Barack Obama was picking winners and losers. And then the next president from the Republican Party is wearing a coal hat. Um, so uh, I think he's picking winners and losers and he's structuring in, uh, uh, regulations to help coal win. So I work for a guy named TJ Rogers at Cypress Semiconductor. He's an iconic piece of work. He's brilliant. He's actually from Wisconsin. He's a libertarian. And yet he was winning government contracts and it was driving him nuts. So he called Milton Friedman and he said, I'm, I'm perplexed. I, you know, I, I believe in free markets, but I'm winning these government contracts and they're an important part of what we do. And so Friedman told him, well, you have to, I mean, what his words were, but something in the effect of you have to exploit the systems that you work within. Um, doesn't mean you advocate for them, but you have to exploit them. So there's a book I just read on the history of energy. And if you read the history of energy and you think, uh, so solar is going to displace an industry that's been around 120 years. And so there's people that say, oh, solar is nothing because it's, uh, you know, 1% of the world's energy mix. Well, what do you expect it to be? I mean, they have a 120-year lead. You think that in like one year you're going to catch up or 10? Do I think, I think government is inherently poor at uh, uh, making decisions because the people that are making those decisions haven't run businesses, have not done that. So I don't think they have a good intuitive feel or empathy. Having said that, if there is incentives and you should exploit those uh, incentives, you shouldn't be ashamed of it. So if you look at SunPower today, just to put it in perspective, so 17 years ago to today, what was the cost of solar then to generate it? And what is it now? Cost of solar when I started was, uh, it's a per watt, uh, it should be per kilowatt hour, I'll do both. Per watt was uh, four bucks, three fifty, four bucks a watt. Per kilowatt hour, that would, depending on how much sunshine you have, might be uh, double digits, uh, 12, 14, 16, something like that per kilowatt hour. Today, uh, you build a large solar uh, plant, uh, two to four cents. So down by a factor of eight. And what does it cost if I build a new gas-fired plant to generate electricity? Six. I don't think people realize that. That's why I wanted you to put out there. It's actually, the technology's come so far that we've actually crossed over. Yeah, the horse has left the barn. You know, the idea of I don't like solar. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's done. Uh, solar and wind are the least cost uh, generation options. And so uh, I said, I had a talk here a year ago, and I said the same thing. When we advertised for a new head of uh, of like our power division, there was like an infinite number of people from uh, traditional energy 
Uh, and that was like, wow, I said, so much. Well, I mean, we're incredible, but we're not that good. <laughs> well, it had nothing to do with us. We were crushing the conventional energy. New solar and wind represent 60% of the new energy in America. Two thirds of the uh, of money spent to create new energy is solar or wind. So that used to be like 99.1 or something. Now you're down to 30%, 33% if you're conventional energy. So they're going, huh, this is back to that shrinking is bad. I want to go where it's growing. You know, as, as someone who's also very pro-free markets, I have to say uh, 17 years ago when we had this conversation, it was like, you know, why is the government in the middle of this? And, and for anyone who wants to know why, look at the data now, right? If you want to create industry sometimes, if you wait for the free market, it could take forever. And we actually have fundamentally flipped an equation that, I mean, early on, there's a lot of people that doubted solar would ever get to this point. And I know that, uh, you know, some of that came from just traditional scaling. Some of it came from, frankly, overinvestment in the industry. I'm curious if, if, if you look at the dynamic of the industry today with all the capacity that came online out of Asia and other places and, you know, while solar is a lot cheaper, it's been a tough business to be in. If you were going to start a new renewables company today from the ground up, how would you go about it that might be different than how people are doing it now? So I read the New York Times has a uh, interview with CEOs. One CEO said, I fire myself every Friday and rehire myself Monday. Um, so you have that headset of I was just hired. Now I try to do that. It's, uh, you have the tyranny of now, so it's a little difficult to do. Um, and there's like a billion things on your plate. So it's hard to pull back and say, what would I do fresh? Uh, but that is my job. And we just raised, uh, we sold equity and raised uh, $180 million. And you're explaining to investors why they should invest. So I'm answering basically that question. Um, the, the, and what I've tried to say to the U.S. government as well is the idea of making, there's a value chain and making solar cells and panels is uh, largely commoditized. Not completely, but largely commoditized. So it's yesterday's game. Tomorrow's game is the incorporation of storage and software so that, uh, um, you have a, a resilient grid. And guess what? Here's an idea. Produce energy where you use it. So that you don't need all that transmission. Someday you're, you know, maybe you will during your career say, can you believe we used to build these giant power plants and all these wires and then we'd ship it versus producing it where you use it. And then if uh, you have microgrids and if something goes down, you just form a new grid. Fairly obvious. So it's, uh, I like to say it's very unusual that you can be in the middle of a disruption and know it. Usually, you know, you were a disruptor after the fact. You look back and, we, you know, it happened. But we're in the middle of a massive disruption. And so moving downstream to the incorporation of storage and software is also less capital intensive. And that's a big deal because capital intensity is a bet. That means you have to have capital. And when that train stops running well, it's bad. I know. And that's why we split the company in two. So it would be a uh, software company and we try to create energy as a service. Do you have advice for someone who's listening to the podcast, who's thinking, well, I want to, maybe they want to be a CEO. I'm going to start my own company. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be an innovator. A couple things you could share that you think they should be thinking about as they head down that journey. You will fail. And failure is a good thing. So how do you feel fast or learn from it? So I would flip that maybe and say it in the positive. And I think uh, great entrepreneurs are always 
optimistic. There are always believers. They're, they're insane, right? And it's just, we're going to figure this out. We're going to, and so no, you're going to go through the valley of death. And then I, there was a, actually a book that really influenced my thinking. Uh, and it was given to me by the head of the United Way, uh, group that I was uh, part of in Pennsylvania. And it's from, uh, barbarians to bureaucrats. And it's basically that your management style should change with the style. Now, this is going to get right in Chuck's thinking here. But as you, you know, when you're running a startup, you're a barbarian. He's, you know, hey, team, let's get together and think about, give me a break, right? We need revenue. (laughs) We need a product. We need something somebody wants. So I think uh, situational leadership, when you're running General Electric Company, you can't be a barbarian. It's harder unless you're Steve Jobs and you're probably not. So uh, you need to have a different style. Cash is king because when you need cash, it's the hardest to get. And I've been living this for five years now because the counterparty knows you need it. And so, of course, then you're negotiating and they go, well, see, I have all the cards and you don't have any. So guess what? I'm going to write the terms of this deal. So cash is king. Most important thing is do something that somebody will pay you for, you know. So uh, get revenue. Just talk is cheap. PowerPoint's cheap. Get revenue. when somebody And, they, and it's not a commitment for revenue. Get revenue. <laughs> so, cause you, oh, I've got four letters in the tent. Yeah. I'll sign one of those too. Just get revenue. Yeah. When I get asked about that, I always say, you know, you have to create value. And I said, they, how do you know when there's value? When you get paid, that's when you created <laughs> value. And until then, you haven't created any value yet. As we get ready to wrap up, any closing thoughts or things you wish we would have talked about today? I'm just a huge believer in the power of positive thinking. And I've read all kinds of books on this, the, the old book, Psycho-Cybernetics, and there's a book called Positivity that I read, which is the whole book can be summarized as if you think positive, it can influence how you, uh, your performance. Uh, and it had embedded in it a question of why not now? It stuck with me because in your career, you can always be going to the next thing, going to the next thing. And I have meeting, I have class at three and then dinner and then tomorrow I have a flight and you're always on the next thing. And why can't now be the moment uh, where things are great? Uh, So the power of positive uh, thinking would be what I'd leave you with because um, also uh, tied to earlier, be CEO of your own career. So the probability that somebody's going to pick you up and pull you through and you're going to be a CEO or start your own company is near zero. Um, so how do you show that initiative and then the inevitable uh, failure point, turn that into a positive, and then the next failure point into a positive? That would be, I think, super, super important. Tom, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, on the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, I also appreciate the chance to get to work with you now for, wow, I guess if 2006, it means for 13 years now. Um, it was a lot of fun. I really appreciate all the help you gave me as CEO. And more importantly, the things you continue to do, not only helping build an industry, but um, you know, your generosity for here at Marquette and the other things you do, it's, uh, you know, it's really inspirational for a lot of people. So thank you very much for everything you do. And uh, I can't wait for the podcast to come out. Awesome. Thanks, Chuck. And younger next year. And I learned it all from Chuck, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) That's not true. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks to Tom Warner for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing some great life lessons that apply to any entrepreneur in any field. As Tom said, 
If you're growing and very profitable, you're going to attract a lot of competition and won't be growing and very profitable for much longer. His advice is a great reminder that when it comes to leading innovation, it's not about what you've already done. It's about what you are going to do next. I would also encourage you to take Tom's perspective as a leader and realizing that you can decide that it's not happening to me, I'm happening to it. This idea is key to unlocking your innovator spirit and recognizing that you can make change happen instead of waiting for it to happen. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues because I think we all know of things that could use some innovative thinking. Please feel free to contact us through our website at innovatorsontap.com. We're always open to new ideas or critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.